this weekend for us has been about the next generation. It's been about the next generation. What do we do to impart wisdom to the next generation? And the problem with that is a lot of us aren't really comfortable yet with what wisdom is. The Bible talks about wisdom all the time. Of course, there's a whole book of wisdom in the book of Proverbs written by King Solomon. Jesus <clears throat> spoke in, in, uh, in parables often with uh, proverbial wisdom underneath that. James, the brother of Jesus, is a book of wisdom. In fact, the book of James that we've been studying all uh, winter here is a book of wisdom. It's called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And so right in the heart of the book of James is this invitation for us to experience the wisdom that comes from above. The wisdom that comes from above. And there's all kinds of wisdom out there. There's wisdom that uh, is just common sense. There's wisdom that is logical. There's wisdom that can, you know, get what we need in the here and now. But James is calling us to experience a wisdom that comes from above. And we're going to talk about that tonight. But I want to start off with a sentence that's a pretty strong sentence. And you can tell me either by a nod of the head that you agree or a shake of the head that you disagree or throw something heavy at me. That's a real strong indicator of disagreement. So very clear communication. Here's a sentence I want you to think through. Our culture, we're talking about the American culture, you could say broadly the West, our culture values knowledge in pursuit of success, but absolutely no value for wisdom in pursuit of virtue. What do you think? Maybe? Yeah, some of you are like, yeah, I agree. Some of you are thinking about it. When I wrote that sentence, I thought, okay, is that a little strong? I try to avoid the hyperbolic a little bit. I try to avoid the big statements that may or may not be totally true. But at least the first two lines, we could agree on that I think our culture, like a laser, values knowledge in pursuit of success. Success is the metric that we use to determine value here in the United States of America. We want to be successful. Nothing wrong with that. We want our kids to be successful. There's nothing wrong with that. But the statement here is that our culture has absolutely no value for wisdom in pursuit of virtue. Now, let me just give you a little test as to why I think this is true. When was the last time you used the word wisdom or virtue in your language coming out of your face hole? Is there any? Can you remember? A three-year-old down there did. No value for wisdom in pursuit of virtue. We don't talk about virtue in our culture. It's just not spoken of. We do talk about knowledge and pursuit of success, but we don't really talk a lot about the pursuit of virtue, especially virtue that is for others, for the betterment of others. So we're going to talk about that today. James says in James 3.13, which is our passage for today, he says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. This is the invitation to live a good life, a meaningful life, as we've been talking about all winter, this beautiful life that James calls us to live. And that beautiful life arrives from pursuing the wisdom that comes from above. But pursuing wisdom is not something we are used to. We're used to attaining knowledge or skill sets that help us in the here and now be successful. Wisdom is something different. Wisdom is mining the depths of who God is, mining the depths of God's word, mining the depths of discussion with one another so that we can grow in our understanding of God, grow in our understanding of what his plans are for us, grow in our understanding of our place in his good plans for this world that he loves so much. So what is wisdom? We have to define it because we don't speak about it often. Wisdom is this. It is the ability to make sound decisions for the common good, applying experience, knowledge, and sound judgment. 
Wisdom isn't just doing things to be successful for ourselves. Wisdom is making sound decisions for the common good. It's a selfless virtue, applying our experience, applying our knowledge, applying our communal understanding of who God is and his plans for us, and applying it in a way that makes um, a difference in this world. That's what James is calling us to do. So wisdom turns simple knowledge into a meaningful life of selfless virtue. And that's what we're discussing tonight. A meaningful life of selfless virtue. And then how do we pass that on or impart that into the next generation? Uh, And we'll talk about that in some respects here at Rancho with Rancho Kids and youth groups and our school. Why is it that one of our top values is to equip the next generation? It's because books like James and the teaching of Jesus and the Old Testament Proverbs are encouraging us, in fact, urging us to pass on this pursuit of wisdom to the next generation. It is critical. It is mission critical. And it's in our top values, turning simple knowledge into a meaningful life of selfless virtue. Doesn't that sound like a great life for us and for your kids, for the next generation and the generation to follow? But the problem here, I think, in the West is that we have these two pursuits. One is a pursuit of happiness. I mean, that's that's in, in the Declaration of Independence, right? I mean, that's the founding document, this pursuit of happiness. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself to pursue success, to pursue gain, to pursue career, uh, to pursue uh, a, a certain lifestyle, and to have the freedom to do that. There's nothing wrong with pursuing happiness. But if we're pursuing our own happiness at the expense of pursuing deep and profound wisdom that results in the selfless life of virtue, then we have a problem. And every once in a while, our pursuit of happiness is different than the pursuit of virtue. Uh, Andy Stanley, a pretty famous American preacher, says this, When happiness points in one direction and wisdom points in another direction, that's when really smart people do really stupid things. And the case studies on that are are, are bountiful. And uh, I'm not talking about this kind of stuff, you know, just trying to open up a, you know, a door. That's something that we all have problems with. There's a room upstairs, it's our conference room, and, um, and it has double doors, and the double doors open in, which is weird for me. So I have gone into that conference room about 104 times, and every single time I come to that conference room, it's like, let me in. I can't, oh, this is a push double door. I just never experienced that in my life. And so I do this all the time. We're not talking about just kind of mindless, you know, mistakes. We're talking about serious mistakes. And, uh, and here's a few that we can just, you know, have fun with. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend that. Or the, don't you want that guy to fall? The safety first guy, don't you just want him to bail on the staircase? Parents, I would not recommend that. This does look like fun, however, I, I might sign up for that. You know, a truck is 20 bucks for a couple hours, just do that. That's one of my favorite, favorite ones, because I would do that. Look at what this guy's covering his ears with. And by the way, he's wearing an ATF hat. <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> I would not want to be at the bottom of that man pile. Doing some tree trimming? <laughs> I don't know. This next one's my favorite. He's starting a chainsaw. <laughs> there, there are better ways to start a chainsaw, right? I admire his uh, courage, but I wouldn't recommend that. Now, it is super fun for us to point to other people's uh, stupidity and to say, ah, look at them. But, you know, I've got my own list 
This face did not get this contorted without a lot of damage done to it over the years of doing stupid things. I have scars all over this face, and there stitches, at least 50 of them, you know, held this thing together at times through motorcycle stuff and bicycle stuff, all stupid stuff, showing off to girls. I mean, my, this face has gone through absolute hell. Um, and so I am prone to do stupid things as well for the sake of some temporal thrill, but at the expense of wisdom. I want to show you a picture of a bridge. It is a, a bridge similar to a bridge I cross every Friday. I play golf just about every Friday here in town. And uh, there's a bridge on that golf course that's built exactly like this, but without the handrails, without the side rails. So it has those protrusions. You know, every fourth plank protrudes over the creek at this particular golf course. And uh, we were golfing with a buddy, and, um, and this buddy decided to do something absolutely insane. He took a full run, and he went across the hundred and some foot bridge just on those side rails over the creek. And you have to run, because you can't just walk from, you know, piece of wood to piece of wood over the, over the side of this. You had to run. And any misstep, you are going to be in absolute trouble. And he just did it, and we were all impressed. Good for you, my friend. Now, every Friday when we cross that bridge, um, my buddy, Ryan Beaver, and I have this little conversation. Are we going to do it today? Is one of us going to put down their club and run across the side of this bridge? And we talk about it nearly every time we cross that bridge, every Friday for years. And uh, we think, okay, maybe today's the day one of us is going to do it. Something totally stupid, unwise. And then we start thinking through the consequences of just having your foot slip just a little bit and your shin breaking in half, your face you know, being crushed on the very next board, twisting and flailing down uh, probably 12 feet to rocks and sticks and a, and a den of rattlesnakes. And that's how we die with a big stick poking out of your eye. And for the rest of time, that's how you're going to be remembered. And we thought, okay, well, not, not this week, but maybe next week, right? And ladies, did you, know something, um, did you notice something very similar about all of those pictures that we saw? Yeah, they're all guys, right? <laughs> they're all guys. We don't see it because that's just normal, right? And so in pursuit of some temporary thrill, we will sacrifice wisdom, and we do that all the time. In fact, smart people make a lot of dumb mistakes. Smart people, like you and I, uh, fail to pay bills on time and suffer the consequences. Smart people occasionally text and drive. We know that's very unwise, but we do it. Smart people will lie to cover their mistakes because they don't want to look foolish. Smart people will buy things they can't afford. That happens all the time. Smart people hurt the ones they love with their words. Smart people will even cheat on their spouses. Smart people will exchange a lot of wisdom for some temporal thrill or some temporary feeling of happiness. This happens so often, there's actually a field of study on why smart people do unwise things. And this is led by Shane Frederick at Yale University. And so, uh, you know, they have nothing else to do other time. So let's study and spend millions of dollars studying why smart people do dumb things. And here are some of the reasons why. Smart people tend to be overconfident, like looking at this bridge saying we will, you know, cross the side of it and do very dumb things because we're so athletic and uh, wonderful, right? We're overconfident. That sometimes leads us to do unwise things. Smart people tend to always need to be right, Smart people tend to think they're smart all the time, so they must have all the answers. This gets us in trouble. Smart people have trouble reading other people. Smart people tend to be pretty um, you know, self-impressed, and so we struggle sometimes to read other people. And I'm looking around this room, and lots of smart people. We all probably have some of these issues, right? Uh, smart people give up when they fail. This is an interesting phenomenon. Smart people don't like to look stupid. And so when we do something that isn't working, we will bail out. 
and do something else. And sometimes, sadly, that includes relationships, friendships, marriages, right? We tend not to like to fail. Smart people aren't tough. That's something very similar. We, we don't have the grit to just keep driving through something very difficult. And smart people struggle accepting criticism. Smart people don't want to look dumb. And so when somebody criticizes us, we're like, whoa, 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 I don't think so. I think you're the wrong one, right? Now, this is a room full of smart people. And these are the reasons why sometimes we fail to seek wisdom. Because wisdom requires failing. Wisdom requires grinding through difficult things and learning and growing through those things. See, wisdom isn't just the thin veneer of being happy in the moment. Wisdom is saying, I want to mine the depths of truth. I want to mine the depths of God's truth. I want to mine the depths of his plans for this world and my place in that. I want to mine the depths of the human experience, which includes struggle and grief and pain, right? I want to get there. I want to get to the deepest level of human existence and relationship with God. All these things just shortcut that. And so you can be incredibly brilliant but lack wisdom. Wisdom is about taking that brilliance, taking our God-given minds and saying, God, would you help me to live the deepest life possible, the most meaningful life possible, this beautiful life that you offer us. James 3, 14 through 15 talks about this problem. He says, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. So what, what pushes out wisdom is bitter envy and selfish ambition. And I will tell you, listen, I love the United States of America. I bleed red, white, and blue, all of it. I love our country, but our country is built on bitter envy and selfish ambition. Our country is built on this idea that you can get more. You can get more. You can, you can go after it. You can get anything you want to. And, and that's made pretty clear by our commercials. Just watch four commercials. Here's this thing out there. You don't have it. Therefore, your life is incomplete. So you got to go out there and get that. And you get that thing and your life will be more complete. That is the American value system. And if somebody else has something you don't, we will envy that, whatever that is. That lifestyle, the house, the car, the clothes, whatever it is, we will envy that. We'll say, well, I'm just as smart as that person. Why don't I have what they have? Just follow an average kid around you know, school and, and the value systems that are pushing that kid forward. And it's the same thing. Do good in school so you can go to a, a good college, so you can get a good job, so you can make good money and live a good lifestyle. That is the, 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 the driving force of American culture. It is about bitter envy and selfish ambition. Now, many great things have happened in this world because of that American value system, so I'm not throwing it all out. I'm just saying if life stops here with bitter envy and selfish ambition, and if our lives are, are this laser focus on my individual success, then we're missing out on the deeper life of wisdom and selfless virtue that God calls us to. Such fake wisdom, in quotes, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. I mean, James is hitting this hard. You might remember when we introduced James. He's James the just. He's James who took a vow of poverty, and so he's battling the sort of Western, in this case, uh, Western slash Roman sense of greed, and we will take what we want. And he's battling that hard. He's saying this idea of going after material things and personal success is, is eliminating this incredible journey that God has for us to pursue wisdom. James says in, in James 3.13, going back just a couple of verses, show wisdom by living a good life by deeds done in humility. This is where wisdom starts. Wisdom starts with 
humility. Not the arrogance of being smart and I have all the answers, right? But the humility that says I have a lot to learn. Here's Socrates. Uh, Socrates, as you may know, is uh, called the father of Western civilization. And he is uh, quite an individual. He has quite a story. He was fiercely devoted to seeking wisdom. Now, of course, he was not um, a follower of God. He lived hundreds of years before Jesus Christ. He wasn't Jewish, and, and he was a, a member of these Greek you know, city-states who uh, at the time was forming this new idea about how we are to be as a civilization. And he was under the impression that if we sought wisdom, if hum humankind sought wisdom and, and pursued it with all their heart and lived in this incredibly rich philosophy that he was developing, then all of humanity would be this bright, shining light. And so with obsession, he pursued wisdom, so much so that he wouldn't take any money because if he took any money, it would corrupt his uh, altruistic pursuit of wisdom. And so he wanted to be totally uh, uncorruptible, incorruptible. And, and, and so he, he just lived this life of fierce obsession to gain wisdom, but he was never satisfied with what he was learning, never satisfied with the thoughts that he was developing. So he and his buddy, Sharifan, went to visit the oracle at the city of Delphi. And he comes to this oracle at the city of Delphi and says, uh, who is the wisest person in all of the Greek city-states? And the oracle says, it is you, Socrates. And he says, it can't be me, I know nothing. He kept saying his, his whole life, he says, I know nothing. And he told the oracle, he said, I can go back to the city and I can find you a hundred people who know more than I do in poetry and philosophy and government and art and craftsmanship. He says, I could show you a hundred people wiser than me. And the oracle said, that, Socrates, is why you are the wisest. Think about that. The other people know how smart they are and are satisfied with their brilliance. Socrates was always discontent with how much he knew and so always wanted to know more. He wanted to get deeper and deeper and deeper. And the oracle essentially said, because you are so humble, Socrates, because you think you know nothing, that makes you the wisest of all. And I think that's a bit of what James is saying. James is saying, hey, listen, wisdom begins with humility. If we are arrogant, if we think, you know, we're the master of our trade, if we think, you know, we've got politics figured out and we've got um, our vocation figured out and we have, you know, our, our, our faith in Christ all figured out, then we're not going to pursue wisdom with the kind of vigor that James is calling us to, to pursue it. It begins with humility. To put it this way, wisdom is born from humility. The admonition that we honestly don't know much that we have so much more to learn and that all we learn is to be put to good work, put to work for the common good, not for selfish ambition, but the wisdom that we gain in humility is to be used for the common good. That's wisdom that results in selfless virtue. And that wisdom produces an incredible life, what we're calling the beautiful life. That pursuit of wisdom and selfless virtue results in this life according to James 3, 17 and 18. It says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. James just gives a, a bullet point list of a person that pursues wisdom and selfless virtue. This is a life that is magnificent. 
This is a life that brings people together, not tears them apart. This is a life that lives for the common good. This is a life that is humble and submissive, not trying to get to the top all the time, but serving. This is a life that reaps a harvest of righteousness. Now, righteousness is kind of a churchy word. Just think right. Just think turning wrong to right, right? Turning wrong to right. That's what a person of wisdom does. A person of wisdom is thinking outside themselves. They're feeling deeply the the feelings of others. They're empathizing with the brokenness of the world, and they use their knowledge in line with God's heart, in line with God's spirit, and they're putting that knowledge to work for the betterment of others, fixing what's broken in this world. That reaps a harvest of righteousness makes a wrong world right, makes a broken world whole. That's a beautiful life. It's a lifelong journey of discovering God and his good plan for us with humility, pursuing selfless virtue, living for the glory of God and the benefit of others. That's a beautiful life. And for us here in the West, for us Americans who who tend to think of things in terms of my success, Boy, we've got a lot of work to do, myself included, a lot of work to do to kind of shed that idea that this life is about me, my success, getting my way, doing what I want, to say I'm going to shed that, and I want to pursue this deep life of pursuing God, who he is, his plans for us, and where I fit in that, and how we together can explore that in community. So how do we impart that to the next generation? That's our focus today is the next generation. And so how do we pass on this wisdom to the next generation? Well, I'm going to give you just a couple of things not to do. If you're a parent, I'm telling you, take notes and memorize this last 12 minutes here. Take notes. If you're a parent-to-be, you've got to listen to this right now. If you help out with children's ministry, you're a hero, by the way. Youth ministry, you're a hero. You've got to pay attention to this. We're going to tell you by God's word and by God's truth how to impact the next generation. You ready to go? First thing not to do. Do not lecture. Do not lecture the next generation. Lecturing does not impart wisdom. Do you know how I know that lecturing does not impart wisdom? Because I lecture all the time. I lecture for a living. This is a lecture. And I'm telling you, tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up and you're going to go, what did he say? What did, we had a, did we go to church yesterday? <laughs> I can vaguely remember that experience, right? Sitting and listening to, to words is a good thing. In fact, it's pretty central to the Christian faith to gather together in an assembly and rally around God's word and God's uh, uh, mission together. That's important. But you're going to remember just about zero of what you heard here today. And this sermon's awesome. <laughs> kidding. You're going to remember close to nothing about this sermon. I mean, if I were to give you a quiz one week from now about what you just heard, I don't know. Because lecturing doesn't impart wisdom. Lecturing can inspire. Lecturing can sort of settle deep in our hearts some values. So it's, it's valuable. I'm not discounting it. Um, but this does not impart wisdom. And so if you are lecturing your kids or lecturing youth in church or in school, it's a very, very little value to bring the wisdom that God offers us. In fact, if we use things like uh, with our kids, you know, well, why can't I do that? Well, because I said so. Well, that's even worse. If you're in church and somebody asks, well, why should we believe that? Well, because the Bible says so, that's even worse. That's not wisdom. That's throwing syllables out there and kind of demanding that the next generation believes what we believe and demanding that the next generation does what we tell them to do. That might work till kids are about two. But then after that, things need to start changing a little bit. We've got to get the next generation thinking, not just hearing words from other people. 
thinking, processing, wrestling through. That's the nature of the word wisdom in the scripture is to deeply process and think through. And so it's not about lecturing. In fact, if we just lecture our kids, whether it's in home or, or lecture kids in church, it's just another form of moralism. We talk about moralism a lot here. Moralism is the belief that right behavior is the source of life and blessing. Been around Rancho for four and a half minutes, you know this is not the priority of God. The priority of God is not to make compliant, weak little children. God wants us thinking and growing up to the full stature of maturity, to the full stature of Christ. And that doesn't happen by lecturing and demanding that other people, particularly the next generation, fall in line. That's not wisdom. That's something else. That's, that's childish. Sort of like preschool, right? Here's the rules, right? Follow the rules. Brings us to the second point. Rules do not impart wisdom. Rules do not impart wisdom. Lecturing doesn't work and rules don't work. There's an incredible study about rules. This was a, a commissioned by a Kohlberg. It's a massive study about the moral development or the character development of the next generation. And I'm just gonna show you a couple of, of quick charts. This is moral development, the moral development curve when it comes to rules and punishment. If we are trying to get our children to behave, whether it's in our homes or in, um, in church, if we're trying to get our kids to behave by rules and threats of punishment, that taps out nearly completely by age 11. Now, if you're trying to keep a child's hand out of the fire when they're two years old, you know, a couple rules and uh, some threats of punishment is fine because you're trying to save their lives. You're trying to make sure they don't dump boiling water on their face, right? That works when they're very, very young. But you start getting to the kind of the tween years and into teenage years, I'm telling you that rule curve and threats of punishment, that curve is steeply in decline. Now, sometimes parents and pastors, when we get to the teenage years, we, we sometimes are desperate to get our kids to comply and obey because it makes us look good and it's convenient, but we oftentimes get desperate and we up the rules and we up the punishments, right? In a desperate attempt to get our kids to obey because we might think it's best, but we also, you know, don't want the hassle. We want them to obey. We want them to comply. It's just an easier life, right? And so we get desperate and pile on more rules with more threats of more punishment. And I'm just telling you, it doesn't work. All it does is make our hearts harder. And a lot of families are in that position. So lecturing doesn't work, rules don't work. Let's look at what does work. In the same graph, in the same study, this is the moral development when it comes to uh, authority over a, a student's life. And so uh, if you're a parent or a pastor or a teacher, you have a lot of say in the character development of children. The rules kind of peter out, but your presence as authority uh, really makes a lot of difference until they're about 14. And then the fact that you're a parent, a teacher, or a pastor really starts to lose its luster in those high school years. Then you're just a guy or a girl, right? How about peers? What difference does peers make in moral development? Well, everything for a teenager, right? Through the whole high school years, people, uh, students develop their moral character primarily in their relationship with each other. What's right and wrong is determined by their relationship with each other. There's this group think that happens, particularly in the high school years. It's a group think in terms of what's right and what's wrong. And if the group just decides, hey, this thing is right. I don't care what my parents say. I don't care what my pastor says. I don't care what my teacher says. We in a group agree that this is right. Well, then it's right for them, right? So peers are hugely important, especially in the life of a, of a teenager, those middle school and high school years. The most important thing we can instill in the next generation is the idea of personal virtue. 
Now, a person of virtue cannot start, that journey can't start until the age of 10 or 11 because the human brain is not wired for complex thought. And pursuing wisdom and pursuing selfless virtue is a very complex thought, right? It's a complex process. That starts at about 10 or 11. So, so listen to me carefully here. When a, a child gets to be about middle school age and high school, they have got to be put in environments where there is, is learning from wisdom and seeking virtue, not being lectured, not this steep declining rules curve. Um, there's some authority in their lives. We don't want them getting all of their truth and moral character development from their friends. So we've got to have them in these deep environments of discovery, discovering wisdom, discovering wisdom in profound ways where they're learning together and growing together, guided by the authorities in their life. But they are learning on their own they're learning to process their own thoughts, their own feelings, their own sense of right and wrong in a guided way here, but they've got to develop their own personal journey of virtue and character. And we'll tell you how to do that here in just a second. No lecturing, well, little lecturing, um, few rules, and no fear. Fear does not impart wisdom. Lectures don't work, rules don't work, and fear doesn't work. But I'm telling you, if we want kids to obey, if we want kids to comply, if we want kids to kind of fall in line, we will use fear. Parents use fear a lot. You know, hey, if you do that, some terrible thing is going to happen to you, and then when it doesn't happen, then we lose our credibility. I'm telling you, the greatest purveyors of fear is the church. The greatest purveyors of fear, we are peddlers of fear. You, you want fear, you go to church, Right? That's just the normal state of things. And so in church, we create fear of the judgment of God. And I'm telling you, we have done that for thousands of years. And we developed these incredible systems of how God is just going to absolutely lay heavy on you. And so we fear that. So tell us what we do to avoid it, right? Not remembering that Jesus says perfect love casts out all, what? Fear. But we create fear, huge sense of heavy fear. Why? Because we want kids, in particular, to behave. We create fear of the end times. I remember being a kid in the 80s, you know, what I call here the dark ages of, uh, of Christianity. And, um, you know, there's this fear of the end times. Hey, do not misbehave because if Jesus comes back and you're caught in a sin, you don't want that to happen. And I'm like, okay, I definitely don't want that to happen. We create fear. We create fear of unbelievers. Don't hang out with unbelievers. They'll drag you into the pit of hell. We create fear of sex. Don't do that, right? Uh, don't do this. Don't do that. You know, you'll get some disease. You'll go blind. That was really funny. We create fear of homosexuals. Homosexuals have an agenda to make all of our kids gay. We create fear of science. Science is a big conspiracy theory out there, right? To discredit the Bible, so don't pay any attention to science. We create fear of other religions. These other religions are conspiring and they're gonna hurt us and harm us. And we have culture of fear, especially in church and in Christian homes. And we use fear as a tool to make very small and very weak kids. But God hasn't designed us to make us small and weak. He's designed us to, to grow up into the full stature of Christ according to Ephesians. And so we've got to participate in their development. And that development is not lecturing. It's not rules. It's not fear. It's putting them in environments that are rich and profound with authorities in their life who love them and will guide them in their journey of wisdom. That's an exciting future. So these are three things we shouldn't do. Two things we should, and then we're done here. Number one, and this is just absolutely huge, 
Provide open, caring, and thoughtful conversations. Open, caring, and thoughtful conversations. Um, this is particularly true at home. Parents, you are the number one voice in your kid's life. Nobody can replace that. Teachers can't replace that. Pastors can't replace that. You are the number one voice in your kid's life. So create open, caring, and thoughtful conversations with your kids. And as they get older, that's a little more difficult because, you know, they're all over the place. I've got uh, a, a, a sophomore in college, and, and she's, you know, certainly moved away. And so having those deep, meaningful conversations, they're a little more rare now. Uh, the boys are 16. They're in sports, and they get three weeks off a year from that. And it's just, you know, finding that time is a lot of work. Finding those vacations are a lot of work, but we've got to do it. In our house, it's the back patio. We have uh, this little sort of, you know, outdoor sofa set in the back patio. And uh, every once in a while, I'll just tell my kids, especially in turning points in their life, hey, dude, back patio tonight, is that cool? Absolutely, that's cool. They know what's coming. They know it's going to be a conversation. I'm not going to lecture them. If I lectured them, they wouldn't want to go to the back patio. They go, oh, Dad, that's just lame. I don't want to do it. It's like, no, back patio, absolutely. They look forward to back patio chats. They know I'm going to draw stuff out of them. They know we're going to have good, long conversation. They know short answers are not going to fly. I'm going to try to pull thoughts from them. Um, and in case there's any surprise, I have no problem pulling thoughts out of my girls. They'll talk a lot. Pulling thoughts out of my boys are a little bit difficult. And, but, but I'll just give you one example. And I'll sit down with, with my kids, usually one at a, at a time, and um, this is just one example of, of many, and just say, hey, how are things going at school? You know, just lightweight, everyday question. How are things going at school? How are things going with your friends? You know, um, how, how are people treating each other? you know, around, around campus. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm fishing. How are people treating each other around campus? Is there anybody that just might be kind of on the edge? Is there anybody that, that may not have a friend or anybody getting harassed? So now we're about 15, 20 minutes into the conversation, and what I'm fishing for is where are there conflicts at school? Where are there are people are, or groups of people that are just kind of getting harassed by other groups of people? And then what starts to bubble up are things like, you know, there could be some racial dis disconnects and some racial tensions at school. There could be some kids that are struggling with uh, sexual identity issues, and they're kind of marginalized or made fun of. And so you're identifying a problem that is existing on that campus, and then you just ask another question. You're not lecturing, just asking more questions. Well, do you think you can play any part in that disconnect? Do you think there's anything you could do? In, in this disconnect, either between, you know, races or, or, or gender issues, and is there anything you think you can do? I don't know. Well, think about it. Think about it. Is there anything you can do in that scenario? And then they start processing. They're, they have the time to think, and then they start articulating, you know what, maybe I could do this. Maybe I could do that. Maybe I could be cool this person. That's the journey of wisdom. And I'm t telling you, this is an hour conversation. This just takes time. And you've got to pull this out of kids and get them to start their own process of pursuing wisdom. Wisdom results in selfless virtue. And selfless virtue is a beautiful life that makes a difference. And a harvest of righteousness emerges. Righteousness emerges. Now, uh, when my kids fail, and believe me, uh, my kids fail because uh, they have parents that have failed and continue to do so. And when they fail, what is that? It could be another patio time when we process and ask questions, ask questions, ask questions, and to pull out this incredible dialogue. Open, thoughtful conversations. And then finally, a positive vision of a life well-lived. We need to impart into the next generation a positive vision of a life well-lived. Now, I'm going to put it this way, and I, and I want you to pay close attention to this. Children and youth are powerfully shaped, and I would say most powerfully shaped, 
when they know they are cared for and that someone they respect believes their life is meaningful and that they'll thrive. You know my story around here. Um, I was raised in a little bit of a tough house. My parents were uh, just trying to hang in there barely with the effects of alcoholism, and uh, they split up several times, threats of divorce everywhere, screaming in the middle of the night. I mean, all kind of, the whole kind of deal. And, and I didn't have that at home. I didn't have that kind of open dialogue at home with my parents. We were just trying to, you know, kind of you know, survive and make it through, uh, you know, the next day without conflict. But there are three guys in my life that cared for me a math teacher, a youth pastor here at Rancho, um, and a youth leader here in town, uh, Monty, who's still here caring for youth. And they pulled this you know, skinny, stuttering 14-year-old kid aside and said, hey, would you mind, you know, could we do a little study together? Would you mind kind of being on this leadership team? And, and I'm telling you, just the time that these adults invested in my life, and I didn't think I was anything significant. I had no vision of living a significant life. There's just nothing there because of my insecurities, and you can blame whatever you want to, but, but I just did not see a vision of a significant life. Three, these three guys spent time with me, which was huge. Are you kidding me? These are professionals. These are men with families of their, of their own, and they would spend time with me? And then they would invite me to participate with them in leading something? It's like, they must be insane because I'm certainly not worth that, Right? And then I walked with him on this journey, and one of them mentored me for 22 years before he died. And uh, Monty is still a huge voice in my life to this very day. They opened up a vision in my life that says, you know what? You're going to do something cool. And they didn't know I was going into ministry. It didn't matter. It didn't matter what career path I chose. They wanted to see a life of selfless virtue emerge, whatever it was. The marketplace or ministry, doesn't matter. They wanted me to pursue a life of selfless virtue, and they poured that into my life. And, and, and I wouldn't be doing anything, I guarantee I wouldn't be do, doing anything of value if it wasn't for those people pouring into my life. And so for those of you who help out with children's ministry, those of you who help out with youth ministry, those of you who are trying to be good, solid, loving, present parents and grandparents in the next generation's life, you are absolutely heroes because this is God's plan. This is God's plan to do something incredible by the pursuit of wisdom and selfless virtue. Final verse, Proverbs 2, 20, uh, 2 through 5. Listen to the treasure that wisdom is. If you turn your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. God wants us to look for wisdom as though it is a treasure, silver of incredible value. And for us to create those kind of environments in the next generation will make all the difference in the world. That's why, again, one of our top values is equipping the next generation. That's why we continue to urge one another to invest at home in the next generation, invest here in church groups and youth programs and children's ministry. Invest your life in the next generation. We are uh, grieving around here because we lost somebody very dear to the Rancho world. A few weeks ago, I told you the... um, um, you know, the update with Jamie's story, and maybe you've caught some of this on social media. Um, Jamie has been a teacher around here at uh, Rancho Christian for six years. She started in uh, kindergarten, and uh, then she moved to middle school. And she moved to middle school a little bit reluctantly. She loved that young uh, age. When she started teaching middle school in very short order, she absolutely fell in love with that age group, and she began to talk about teaching middle school as a calling, and she says, you will not be able to rip me out of this middle school. 
because she knew that investing and imparting wisdom in the next generation was a very special calling in her life, and it was her privilege to do that. And uh, I've known J um, Jamie, of course, for the whole six years, and uh, she is just such a, a treasure. I mean, beaming with life, smiling, excited about taking on every day, uh, imparting wisdom to the next generation. When she found out that we were opening Imani School in uh, Kenya, she just got right on it. She never met these kids. She never traveled, you know, anywhere far. But she had a heart for these orphan kids that were going to have a Christ-centered school who were gonna go off to university and, and help change Africa. I mean, she bought the whole vision right away. And she got to know these kids. She got to know them uh, through the directors of Imani School, got to know their stories, got to know their backgrounds. She started rallying the Rancho world around Imani projects and around Imani fundraising, and she was just going for it. She was one of the, the huge advocates around here for Imani. And she took a risk to go on this trip. She just uh, decided, I'm gonna go on this trip. I, I've never traveled anywhere. I'm gonna go on this trip, and I'm gonna do it. And she went over Christmas break just a couple of months ago to Grand Open Imani Christian School. And the first class opened of 75 fourth graders. And these are fourth graders who right now would be foraging for food in the countryside of the Embu province of Kenya because government schools go to third grade and that's it. Right now they'd be foraging for food, but instead they're in a Christ-centered home where they're loved with the love of Jesus Christ and they are given the best education so that they will have a bright future and be able to change Africa. She went to go uh, open the school, and on the way uh, back from uh, that trip, she contracted pneumococcal pneumonia, which is a fairly common bacteria. It's nothing exotic, just a fairly common bacteria that impacts people differently, impacts uh, a lot of people, actually, during uh, flu season. But with her particular situation, it, it devastated her. In fact, the final hour of her flight into Paris, Paris France, from Nairobi, she crashed. Uh, she got immediate attention um, through the American Hospital in Paris, France, and, and for the last two months has been on life support. And this last Monday, she was taken off of life support and into the arms of her Heavenly Father. So we lost an incredible member of the Rancho family this last week. And we're hurting around here. We're hurting around here because there's a whole bunch of kids, hundreds and hundreds of kids uh, whose lives she touched because she gave her life to impart wisdom to the next generation. And we've been ministering to them all week. And you'll see even across the hallways, if you, know, you want to take a, take a you know, stroll around the hallway down here, just kids writing notes to, to Jamie expressing thanks this week. We unleashed the full ministry of Rancho, youth pastors, our counseling um, uh, center. Everybody was here all week counseling these kids and faculty as well. Our faculty is hurting. And this is especially difficult because she was doing something so good and so powerful, not only imparting wisdom to the next generation here, but decided to do that for 75 kids that she had never even met on the other side of the world. And they love her. They don't, they, they don't know that she's sick. These 75 fourth graders don't know she's sick. They don't know she's passed away. If they find out, which they will at some point, but when they find out, they're gonna be incredibly devastated. They love this lady. And it just doesn't make sense. You might recall three weeks ago when we first told you the story, sometimes life is just absurd makes no sense. There is no good in this scenario, right? It's just difficult. And to stare, you know, into the eyes of, of a couple of hundred middle school students in our fifth grade who had her as a, as a kindergarten teacher and, and to not have any answers because nothing makes sense. It's just an absurdity. is very difficult. But this is part of the process of wisdom where we take these kids as they're able and faculty and, and take the whole rancho world and say, hey, we're going to walk a journey of grief a journey of sometimes anger, a journey of doubt, which is fine and normal and natural, but we're gonna take a journey together 
that goes to the full depth of the human experience, and together we're going to trust that there's a good God, and together we're going to trust that this good God has a good plan for this world, even in the midst of some of life's absolute absurdities, and we're going to walk forward in wisdom, and we're going to walk forward together trying to pursue this life of selfless virtue for the glory of God and the benefit of others. That's the journey we're on. And I'm telling you, sometimes it's very difficult. It is, it's been a brutal couple of months around here. And, um, and that difficulty is part of the process. And, and together, if we walk that journey together, we are gonna see this, this harvest of righteousness emerge because there are mature and strong followers of Christ pursuing the path of wisdom, not just kind of the lazy, thin, selfish motivations of me and success and gain, but we are a community that learns together, grows together, serves together in powerful ways. And I don't know what that means for you. I don't know specifically what that means in your home or in your ministry opportunities around here, but I know that if you ask God, and James made it very clear at the beginning of this book, we ask God for wisdom, he will give us that wisdom. And you will know by the guidance of his word and the guidance of his spirit and the guidance of our journey together, you will know exactly how God is gonna call you to not only be a person of wisdom, but impart that wisdom to the next generation. Let's pray. God, as a, as a Rancho family of faith, we are uh, grieving pretty intensely this week. This is a difficult time where life doesn't make sense and seems absurd and, and there are no platitudes that will help. There are no easy answers. And there are hundreds of, of young people who are struggling with how all this makes any sense. But God, we trust you. Even though we, we don't necessarily uh, feel all the time this euphoric sense of your presence and, and love, we trust you. This is where faith comes in, where faith really matters. We believe that you're a good God with good plans for this world that you love so much. We believe that we have a part in your good plans to bring a harvest of righteousness, to make all that is wrong in this world right, to make all that is broken in this world whole, and you choose to do that by calling your church together empowered by your spirit, guided by your word, enjoying the camaraderie with one another to walk a journey of wisdom towards selfless virtue. So God, would you allow us to walk a journey towards Christ-likeness, to have the character of Christ, the mind of Christ, to serve like Jesus Christ. And particularly with the next generation, God, would you allow us to think through how we can impart this kind of wisdom in our homes with our children and grandchildren, um, in our children's ministry, in our youth ministry, even here at Rancho Christian as we walk with these children, uh, not to uh, rote, rote teachings and lecturings, but, but uh, God, that, that they would each walk a journey that is profound and powerful, thinking through uh, who you are, thinking through what your plans are for this world you love, thinking through their part in that, thinking through the narrative of how you are going to turn this broken world into a world that is um, aligned with the kingdom of heaven and all tribes, tongues, and nations praising you forever. God, this is not easy, but we are up for the journey. Give us the courage and the strength to seek wisdom and impart it to the next generation. In Christ's name we pray, amen.